Hey, good morning, Lake Murray. Thankful for those of you joining us online this morning. If you have your Bible, I hope that you do. Would you open it with me to John chapter 14, the gospel of John. Next week, we're going to begin a series through the book of 1 John that will take us all the way through the end of the fall. But this morning, I want us to look at John's gospel, John chapter 14. When I was 12, 13 years old, I went to spend a week in the summer with my best friend who lived uh, one state over in North Carolina. And one of the things that we would do during the summer is we love to go swimming. Now, I did not learn to swim until later in uh, life. I was actually, I think, 11 when I learned to swim. So this was probably still very early on in uh, uh, my swimming career, if you will. I was still a pretty novice not a very strong swimmer. And we went with some older friends out to the lake. And one of the guys that we were with said, there's another place if you swim far out in the lake, there was an island kind of out there on the backside of the island, there was a rock that you could kind of jump off. And so I didn't really know any better. And so I just kind of started following these guys and we swam several hundred yards out to an island and started looking for this rock that we could jump into the lake off of. And then one of the guys said, oh no, it's not on this, it's on another one. And so we swam another couple hundred yards out to another island that was a little bit further out and finally we found this rock and spent some good time jumping off of it just doing dumb boy stuff but as boys do we lost track of time and by the time we recognized that it was time for us to swim back to where we had come from it was nearly dark and so we began to kind of venture back across the water in the uh, rapidly decreasing light of day and finally by the time we got about midway back to our first island it was pitch black And we couldn't really see anything. And so we just kind of kept swimming and we got to this island and we recognized that we were going to have to swim back to where we thought we had parked uh, in the dark. And there's a moment here for me. I just remember being 12, 13 years old, just being really just kind of fearful, like this is a truly sink or swim moment. And so as we kind of ventured into the water and started swimming towards the shore, we started swimming in the dark, not really knowing where we were going, just swimming in what we hoped was the right direction. And as we were swimming, we looked kind of onto the shore where we thought we were headed. And there was a light that someone had turned on on a camper or somewhere. And one of the guys said, I remember that camper being close to where we parked. And so we all just kind of started swimming towards the light. And I remember thinking, at this time that I could not keep swimming. And several of those guys, I think, recognized that. And so they were encouraging me to keep going. We're almost there. We're almost there. And I know today, looking back at this as a 36-year-old with children, boys of my own, I know that I probably would not have made it back to shore if it had not been for the friends that were around me, if it had not been for that light on the shore that was guiding us home. And for some of you this morning, you may feel that way right now in the season that we are in. You may feel overwhelmed to the point that you feel like you are drowning, that you are tired, that you can't go on. But what I want to say to you this morning is the Lord has provided people around you. He's provided those who are encouraging you, who are challenging you, who are saying, we're almost there. Just keep swimming. And he's provided for you a light in the darkness that can guide your way home. You know, in some ways I've been looking, thinking past the last year and a half in the midst of this pandemic. And I feel like in some ways the pandemic has presented new challenges to us. But in more ways than that, I feel like the pandemic has forced us to face age old challenges, right? Like many of us over the past year and a half, we've been confronted again with our own mortality. 
Uh, Just this past week, we buried three members of our church here at Lake Murray. We are confronted with the fact that we are frail and we are mortal. We've been confronted with our tendency to trust oftentimes in untrustworthy things, things that can very quickly disappear. We trusted in money. We trusted in business. We trusted in leisure activities, all of these things that can in a moment be taken away for us. And for some of us, we've been reminded through this pandemic that we don't really have as much control as we think that we do. And so when we're faced with these realities, it's easy for us to feel overwhelmed. And the question is, what do we do when we feel overwhelmed? What do we do when we feel anxious, when our anxiety, when our fears threaten to swallow us up? Where do we turn? What do we depend on? And who or what we look to in times of trouble can actually be a very good diagnostic tool to determine what it is or who it is that we worship or we trust. In Psalm 56, the psalmist writes that when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So this week we've been confronted again with just a lot of questions. As numbers continue to climb, as the stress and the anxiety of just the broken world that we live in begins to weigh heavily on us. We have an opportunity this morning to put our faith and to put our trust in the Lord. And so the question then for us today is why can we trust the Lord? And if we can trust him, how do we trust him? And these are essential questions for every single believer to ask. And we're not the first ones to ask these questions. As we'll see in our text today, Jesus had a lot to say to his disciples when they were beleaguered by the cares of the world. And we too can learn a great deal from Jesus's faithful promise to provide for and to protect those who are his. So I want you to open your Bible with me to John chapter 14. We're just going to read three verses this morning. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1 through verse 3. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for this promise from your word. I pray that today as we study your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts to receive that which you have for us by your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wanna give one kind of piece of context before we dive in. Uh, We believe very clearly, we've talked about this, that the Bible is the inerrant inspired word of God. Meaning that what we have in the Bible in its original form is the word of God given to men through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. However, when we arrive sometimes at the Bible as we now have it, right, with chapter and verse divisions, what we need to understand is that chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They were not a part of the original text. They were added later as a help to the reader. Meaning in some places, chapter and verse divisions are very helpful, but in other places, they can actually be a little bit unhelpful. And this is one of the places where I think the chapter and verse division is a little bit unhelpful because John 14 actually is a continuation of what Jesus begins in John chapter 13. And John chapter 14 will continue on really all the way until John chapter 17, because what we have in John chapter 13 through 17 is what we know as the farewell discourse. This is Jesus's teaching to his disciples 
on the night before he was to be crucified. And so to understand the text this morning, we have to read it in context, not just of chapter 14, but really of all chapter 13 through 17. And so we've got to know what comes before and we've got to know what comes after. But these three verses in John chapter 14, I believe there is a great deal to be learned that they help us to really begin to navigate the realities of living in a broken world and that they give us hope when we feel overwhelmed. And that when we put these verses in the broader context of the farewell discourse, we can begin to really feel the hope that is packed inside of these small verses. But in order to kind of get to that point, let's ask three questions of the text this morning. First, let's ask this, why were the disciples troubled? Jesus begins by saying, let not your heart be troubled. This speaks to something that had occurred in chapter 13. Why were the disciples' hearts troubled? Secondly, how does Jesus respond to their trouble? And third, what hope do they have in their trouble? Why were they troubled? How does Jesus respond to their trouble? And what hope do they have in their trouble? What we're going to see this morning, I believe, as we study the text is simply this, that our hope in times of trouble comes from faith in Jesus and the steadfastness of his promise. We'll see that this morning as we unpack these three verses in chapter 14, that our hope in times of trouble comes from our faith in Jesus and the steadfastness of his promise. So let's begin here. Why were the disciples' hearts troubled? Let's look at verse one. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, the context for this statement is found in the preceding chapter. Uh, This is not just a general call from Jesus to not be worried, but this was a specific address to real issues the disciples were facing. So this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. He knows that he is headed to the cross, but the disciples at this point haven't put all the puzzle pieces together. And so in John chapter 13, Jesus begins uh, um, to kind of unpack for them what is about to happen. And listen what he says in John 13, 21. He says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you, meaning one of the disciples, will betray me. In John 13, he says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me just as I said to the Jews. So now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then in verse 38, Jesus answered, will you, talking to Peter, lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow before you have denied me three times. And so in very short order, Jesus tells his disciples, one of you will betray me. I'm going to a place that you cannot come, meaning the cross. And Peter, the leader of the disciples, will break faith and deny that he even knows Jesus. Now you can imagine the shock that probably is reverberating through the room. You can imagine perhaps even the disciples' fear, their confusion. Hadn't Jesus just ridden into Jerusalem to great fanfare a few days before? And many of you perhaps have experienced this type of shock. Maybe, maybe you've gone in, been called into your boss's office and heard, the, heard the, the truth that your company is closing and you're losing your job. Maybe some of you have gone to the doctor's office and you've heard the terrible diagnosis that it's cancer. Maybe some of you have gotten a phone call that you've lost a friend or a family member. You've felt the weight of just that shock, of that confusion, of that fear, of that worry. 
as you try to process what has or what is about to happen. And so the disciples in this moment are overwhelmed. Their hearts are troubled beyond description. And it's at that moment, in the midst of their shock, in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of their anxiety that Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, how can Jesus say this? Because he's just told them all the things that they should be troubled about. But I think this is a good reminder for us that the call to follow Jesus is not a call away from the experience of suffering, right? That the call to follow Jesus is not a call away from the experience of suffering. In fact, Jesus would say that almost the opposite is true, that the call to follow Jesus is a call to suffer. And it's a good reminder for us that even in the midst of that suffering, our ultimate hope does not have to be influenced or is not determined by our circumstances. That Jesus, even in the midst of their confusion, even in the midst of their anxiety, even in the midst of their trouble, can say to them, truly, let not your hearts be troubled. You see, Jesus acknowledges that there is a great deal for the disciples to be troubled by, but that he tells the disciples that their hearts need not be overwhelmed by their troubles. Now, this doesn't help if Jesus stops here, but he doesn't stop here. And so how does he respond to their troubles? Look at this at the end of verse one. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, Now this passage is notoriously tricky for Bible translators, uh, not because of really the language, but because of the mood of the verb. Uh, And so so let me just give you a little idea here. Uh, Some, like Martin Luther, the great German reformer, believes that this statement is an indicative statement, meaning that Jesus is saying, you believe in God and you believe in me. Meaning that Jesus here is just stating the obvious for the disciples. You believe in God, you believe in me. Uh, Others, uh, like uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, believes uh, that this is an imperative. Uh, Actually, the translators of the ESV translate it as an imperative, that Jesus is saying to them, believe in God and believe also in me, that Jesus is commanding them to do something. But the third option, some like uh, the the late R.C. Sproul uh, and J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop of the 1800s, they see it as an indicative and an imperative. That Jesus is saying, you believe in God, command, or I'm sorry, you believe in God's statement, believe also in me, command. That it's a statement that leads to a command. I I think really that all three of those translations probably have merit, but if you were going to ask me which one do I think that Jesus is teaching here, I think the third option is the best that it is an indicative, imperative statement. Now, why is this important? Because the disciples of Jesus are first century Jewish men. Of course they believe in God. But here, Jesus is calling them to a greater measure of faith. He's calling them not just to believe in God, but to trust him. Now, many people believe in God. Many people believe in God and they believe in him in such a way that they will often even turn to him in times of trouble in prayer. But you see, a general acknowledgement of the existence of God is insufficient to bring us peace in times of anxiety, right? Just knowing that God exists, that God is up there, 
that's not enough to bring us peace in times of anxiety. So I think about it with my own kids, right? If, if one of my boys gets scared and calls to me as their father for help, they are not comforted by the thought that they have a dad who exists somewhere. They are comforted by the thought and call out to me for help because they trust that I will hear them, that I love them, and that I can help them. And so when we call out to God in our trouble, in our anxiety, we are trusting him or asking him to help. Now the question then becomes, how then can we be confident that when we call out to God and when we ask him to help, how can we know that he will? How can we know that we aren't just praying to nothing? And this is where I think the statement that Jesus makes is so important. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. You see, Jesus is the answer to the question of whether God hears and helps in times of trouble. Jesus is the answer to the question, does God care? Can God help? Will God save? And the answer is a definitive yes. How do we know? Because he sent Jesus. Jesus here is calling his disciples to a deeper faith, a faith that acknowledges who Jesus is, a faith that also acknowledges that not only does God exist, not only does he hear, not only does he help, but he has done all of those things by sending his son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us to save us from our deepest troubles. You see, the gospel of Jesus frees us from our overwhelming anxiety about matters of life and death. We can be confident that come what may, we are secure in the love and the salvation that God has offered to us by faith in Jesus Christ. And so faith in Jesus here is the foundation for not allowing your heart to be overwhelmed by anxiety, by trouble, by fear. And if this is what they were troubled by, and this is how Jesus responds to their trouble, what hope can they have in their trouble? Look at verse two and three. Jesus goes on to say, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Um, now, the New King James Version translates this idea of rooms with the word mansions. It says, in my father's house are many mansions. And, and this kind of idea of that in heaven somewhere, we all have a mansion uh, has been popularized by a lot of old kind of Southern gospel hymns. I remember as a kid singing all of these hymns about a mansion in glory. And I remember growing up thinking about, dreaming about one day when I get to heaven, I'm going to have my own mansion. And so I look and I would see on TV the, the big houses that athletes or celebrities or actors had. And I would dream and I would say, one day when I get to heaven, I'm going to have my own mansion. But actually this wording of mansions is a really bad translation of what Jesus is trying to say. And the point of Jesus's encouragement is not that one day the disciples will have this massive mansion in heaven because the word here is actually better translated rooms or dwellings as the ESV translates it. In my father's house, there are many rooms because the point of Jesus's encouragement is not lavishness. 
The point of his encouragement is place and permanence. Jesus says, in my father's house, there is a place for all who trust in me. Meaning that Jesus is able to make room for any and all who will put their faith and trust in him. And he tells the disciples that he is going ahead of them to make room for them in the house of his father. And this place prepared for them is a permanent residence. It's a permanent home. It's the home that all of us are looking for. And it's a home wherein nothing will ever cast them out. The writer of Hebrews says that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And we understand from Hebrews and from the Old Testament that to be a Christian is to, in this world is to be an exile, to never really find our home or our place in this world. And Jesus promises his disciples that he is preparing for them a permanent place of rest where their troubles and their sorrows will be no more and their joy will be full. That's the point of Jesus's encouragement here, that he is preparing for them a place, a permanent place of rest and joy and peace. Look at what he says in verse three. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you might be also here. Jesus continues in his promise. Not only is he preparing a place for the disciples, but he is preparing the disciples to be ready to go to the place. And how is he doing that? How is Jesus preparing them, not only preparing the place for them, but preparing them for the place? How is he doing it? He's doing it by being their forerunner. You see, Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is the way the place has been prepared. That it's Jesus who goes before us as our mediator. It is Jesus who tears the curtain in the temple in two. It is Jesus who goes before us before the Father. In John 14, four and five, the verses immediately following this, Jesus says to the disciples, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Jesus prepares a place for his disciples. He makes room. He goes before but Jesus is also preparing the disciples for the place. How is he doing that? How is he preparing his people for the place that he has prepared for them? Number one, he's preparing it through faith. He's saying, have faith, grow in your faith, believe in God, trust in me. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith for us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jesus is preparing the hearts of his disciples for what he has for them by faith. But secondly, he's preparing them through suffering. In John 16, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, but let not, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. You see, our faith in Christ and our suffering for his sake in this world prepares our hearts for his second coming. And here at the end of verse three, we see the crux of the promise that where I am, you may be also, here is the true joy of heaven. Not mansions and glory, not the end of our trouble, but the presence of Christ. Someone once asked, if you could have all the amenities of heaven, but Jesus wasn't there, 
would you still want to go? That's a good question for us to think about. If you could have all that is offered to you in heaven, but Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to go? And in some sense, it's a little bit of a trick question because if Jesus is not present, then no matter what else is there, it isn't truly heaven because heaven is where Jesus is. And this is the greatest promise of the Christian life that one day we will be with Jesus. We will see him whom we have worshiped and we will worship him for all eternity. And so when we are faced in this life with overwhelming trouble, Jesus reminds the disciples who he is. He calls them to a deeper level of faith and trust in him. And he tells them and promises them that he has both prepared a place for them and he is preparing them for that place. And our hope too in times of trouble comes from faith in Jesus and from the steadfastness of this promise we see that we can navigate the anxieties and the troubles and the oftentimes overwhelming circumstances that come into our lives through the foundation of faith in Christ and the steadfastness of his promise to us. And so how can we begin to apply the teaching of Jesus to his disciples in John 14 to our own lives and our own experience? Because listen, we face many daily pressures, anxieties, and challenges. And some of you this morning might feel like You are overwhelmed, like you are ready to give up. And Jesus would remind you today. He would remind you today of who he is, of what he's doing in and through your life. And that he has prepared a place for you. And even now he's preparing you for that place. Um, This passage has special meaning in my own life because the Lord used it to minister to me in a very uh, difficult or critical moment of my own Christian walk. I was early on in ministry. I came into ministry ready to just kind of change the world uh, and several years into ministry really just got burnt out. Uh, Got to a place where I was depressed, got to a place where I was angry, got to a place where I was actually even beginning to doubt my own salvation. And I remember waking up one night in the middle of the night just totally fearful that I was not a believer, that I'd put on some act, that all of this wasn't true. And I just remember for the next several days just being crippled by this thought that I'm not a believer. I haven't trusted Jesus. If I were to die right now, I'd die separated from him. And I remember that I was in my apartment one night and I was just kind of still anxious and worried, feeling all of these overwhelming sense and emotions. And Jesus, in his goodness and his kindness, brought this verse to my mind. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And I I can't really explain it, but in that moment, there was such a peace that enveloped me because of that promise. And I know that it was the Spirit of God and the Word of God working in my heart. But in that moment, I realized that all of my striving and all of my straining and all of my doing, it wasn't getting me anywhere. That salvation was not going to be earned by the things that I was going to do for God, that my salvation came from simply believing in this promise. That Jesus had done the work for me. And God used this really in two ways to minister to me in this season. And I want to just talk about these two ways as we close. 
really just to kind of help you. Perhaps you may feel in a similar situation emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And God used this verse to minister to me in two ways. Number one, he used this verse to minister to me very theologically. The Lord used this word to remind me that my hope was secure in Jesus's promise, that what I felt didn't define me, Jesus does, that what I thought didn't define me, that Jesus does, that my hope was built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And it was this robust theology of God's grace towards me in Christ and my eternal security in him that formed the foundation of the practical steps that I took from that place on to try to get better to try to get into a healthier state of mind and of heart. But God used this verse to bolster my theology. And then from that came a practical outworking of that. Because listen to me, a a theology that ultimately doesn't lead to action is defunct. Uh, Faith in Jesus is the foundation to overcoming our anxiety. But we mislead people when we say that it is the whole solution. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Because after the Lord revived my spirit kind of through his word and reminded me of the goodness of his promise, you know what the next best thing that I did was after that? I sought help from a Christian counselor. Like I started, I got into a weekly counseling routine where I would speak with somebody who, who, who I didn't owe anything to, a Christian counselor who was just able to listen to all of the things that I was unpacking in my heart and kind of help me very graciously get back to a place of mental and emotional health. I began asking for help to develop healthier habits and routines. I started to try to eat better and sleep more and exercise regularly. I started meeting regularly with a mentor, an older brother in Christ who would pray for me and with me. And he would allow me to kind of vent and ask questions and process without the fear of being judged. And I learned that the grace of God that I preached to others, God also had extended to me. And it was in this kind of theological underpinning that led to practical outworking that I believe God redeemed me kind of out of this season. And it took a while. It didn't just happen overnight. It took several weeks and months. And even now kind of going back to those things and being reminded of God's grace to us. And so I think that we do a great disservice to people when they come to us with our anxieties and their worries and their fears. And we just tell them to have more faith or read your Bible more. And certainly those are good things and we should all seek to grow in our faith and spend more time in the word. But sometimes when those things are deployed in the wrong way, what we mean to be means of grace actually becomes law. And this is exactly what Jesus criticizes the Pharisees about in Matthew 23. He says that they are turning what God has meant for grace and freedom into law and burden. And so faith in Jesus is the foundation for our freedom from anxiety and grace. But we build practically on what we learn theologically. We allow the gospel to not only inform what we know, but what we do. And so let me just give you these three thoughts if you feel overwhelmed today. The first thing that I would say to you, if you feel overwhelmed today, the first thing that I would say to you is to confess that burden to the Lord. Now, this seems very simple, but oftentimes we are guilty of kind of taking this every other place, but to the Lord. 
And so today, if you feel guilt, if you feel overwhelmed, you feel anxious, you fear, feel fearful, take that burden to the Lord. Just confess it to him today that God, I just want to be honest. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm scared about. This is what I'm anxious about. Jesus calls us to do just this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Peter reminds the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We begin there by confessing our burden to the Lord. Tell him how you feel. Be honest. God's not afraid of your honesty. Secondly, not only we confess the burden to the Lord, secondly, we ask for help. Galatians 6.2, Paul tells the church, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Listen, you are not meant to do life alone. You're not meant to walk this journey alone. God has placed people in your life as means of his grace to you. And there is help available to you this morning. There's personal help available to you through a trusted family member or friend or brother or sister in Christ who might just want to pray for you or encourage you or walk alongside you. There's pastoral help available to you. We here at the church, man, so much of what we do is just shepherding and caring for people. We want to know how we can pray for you. We want to know how we can help you. We want to know how we can walk alongside you in this season. But also, don't be afraid to ask for professional help. Don't be afraid to seek out Christian counseling, professional Christian counseling, brothers and sisters who have been gifted by God to help others work through significant emotional, mental, or spiritual trauma. Some of you have been through incredibly traumatic things and you're trying to unpack those things on your own or you're trying to try harder and do better and God has simply given you a gift of grace and men and women who he has gifted with the gift of counseling. And so we can help get you connected with a professional counselor here at the church. We can help get you connected with someone who lets you know that you're not in this alone. And so cast your burden, confess your burden to the Lord, ask for help, and then third, seek to live wisely. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Pray and ask the Lord that we would seek to live wisely, even in the midst of our overwhelming fear and anxiety. Ephesians 5.15 calls on all believers to look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We could define wisdom many ways, but I think one of the ways that you can define wisdom is by saying that wisdom is good theology faithfully applied. Wisdom is good theology faithfully applied. You can't have good theology without faithful practice. And you don't have faithful practice without good theology. But when you have good theology that leads to faithful practice, we're walking in the wisdom of the Lord. And so brothers and sisters this morning, for many of you who feel discouraged, for many of you who feel downcast, for many of you who feel overwhelmed, anxious, fearful today, tell the Lord, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in Jesus, for he has gone before you by his cross, in his resurrection, in his ascension, to prepare a place for you, a place where you can be with him. And now, in all things, he is preparing you for that place.
And as we here at Lake Murray seek to be a church committed to the great commandment and the great commission, my prayer is that we would be a church who bears one another's burdens until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this reminder from your word. I pray for those this morning who are listening to this message who feel overwhelmed, desperate, anxious. I pray that they would have heard an encouraging word this morning, that they would confess that burden to you, that they would reach out to someone for help this week, that they would find faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are ready to help them. And that, Father, we would seek to live wisely, that we would not be overcome by fear, but, Father, we would overcome fear in love. And it's the love that you have shown to us in sending your son, Jesus. So we love you. We thank you for him. In his name, we ask all these things. Amen.